There's so much health advice out there, lots of different voices and opinions, but who can you trust? Trust the experts, the world's brightest medical minds, our very own Cleveland Clinic experts. We ask them tough, intimate health questions so you get the answers you need. This is the Health Essentials Podcast, brought to you by Cleveland Clinic and Cleveland Clinic Children's. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to replace the advice of your own physician. Hi, and thank you for joining us for this episode of the Health Essentials Podcast. My name is Kate Kaput, and I'll be your host. Today, we're talking to reproductive endocrinologist Stephen B. Mooney about freezing your eggs. American women are waiting longer than ever to have children, and many of them are choosing to freeze their eggs during their most fertile years with the hopes of improving their chances of being able to get pregnant later in life. Dr. Mooney is here to talk to us today about the ins and outs of freezing your eggs. Dr. Mooney, thanks so much for being here with us today. Thank you, Kate. I appreciate the opportunity to speak on the topic and look forward to the discussion. We're always glad to have you. So I'd like to start out by asking you to tell us a little bit about the work that you do here at Cleveland Clinic, you know, and what kind of patients do you typically see? Yes, I'm a reproductive endocrinology and infertility specialist physician here at the Cleveland Clinic. Um, There are seven or eight of us total in the REI division, and each of us uh, sees individuals or couples who are seeking future fertility, uh, experiencing surgical fertility problems, genetic fertility problems, uh, are interested in uh, oocyte or sperm cryopreservation, and the full range of, of services, also including recurrent miscarriage treatment. Got it. So a lot of important topics that you guys cover, and we're thrilled to talk to you today about freezing your eggs, which has become more and more popular. Um, so can you start out by giving us a little bit of an overview about what it means to freeze your eggs? Kind of what does that term refer to generally? Sure. The term egg freezing has more recently been coined. Originally, we added the term oocyte cryopreservation. It was a very stuffy scientific terminology. Oocyte being the equality of the egg or the equal of the egg and cryopreservation being the the scientific or medical terminology for freezing. Um, It probably confused some people in the lay literature as they read articles online or in a magazine in the waiting room. And so I like egg freezing better because I think everybody understands what are we trying to do? There's someone's egg and we like to freeze it. Why would we like to freeze it? So that we can preserve future fertility in in the situation where we're not ready to achieve pregnancy, you know, in the immediate circumstances. Got it. That seems like a much more straightforward term than uh, oocyte cryopreservation, which I can almost barely say. Me too. So, uh, you know, you said that this is this is something that people might use when they're not quite ready to have a baby. Tell us about some of the reasons um, that someone might choose to freeze their eggs. What are what are some of the most common uh, personal reasons that you hear for this process? Yeah, when I've been to lectures and read journal articles and study on the topic, some authors will separate these out into five or 10 different reasons, but many of them can be coalesced together. Essentially, if a woman or a couple is not yet ready to achieve pregnancy in their current situation, and this could be a litany of things, this could be a female with no partner. This could be um, an individual who has a professional track in her career that just doesn't allow the time and the commitment for having a child at this point in time. It could be a financial circumstance, but what really happens is, is many of these things are, are entangled or intertwined and they're happening all at the same time. Maybe someone's not currently partnered and the finances aren't quite maybe what they want them to be. 
and their career is not really where they want to be. And so oocyte cryopreservation or egg freezing uh, is something that is worth looking into at that point in time. And am I, is it correct too that, you know, there are some treatments, some medical treatments that can impact your fertility. And so, you know, there are some folks who might be undergoing, preparing to undergo, say, chemotherapy, who want to undergo freezing their eggs, you know, to ensure that they kind of preserve their fertility? Yes, there are benign conditions, uh, and there are also uh, malignant or cancerous conditions that could affect fertility. So, for example, say a person has uh, kidney disease or uh, multiple sclerosis or lupus or some other type of condition in which a physician needs to induce a type of remission with medications that aren't consistent with being pregnant. Um, but also there might be an individual diagnosed with a, a neoplasm or a cancer, have to undergo some sort of surgical treatment or chemotherapy treatment, and this won't allow for pregnancy at the, at the current time either. And in both cases, the individuals may want to uh, uh, freeze eggs in order to benefit from them in the future. And I know that other folks who might wish to preserve their fertility are uh, individuals who are going through a gender transition. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So individuals who are gender transitioning oftentimes want to have all of the same uh, capabilities that every other individual or any other couple has in their reproductive choices. And so if an individual is transitioning, uh, such that, say, uh, an individual is transitioning from male to female and is going to be using certain hormonal medications in order to make that transition take place, those uh, medications oftentimes severely impact the sperm count, for example, and the same uh, features can, can play in the reverse. Got it. So lots of reasons why people might want to freeze their eggs. Talk to us a little bit about age. Is there an ideal age for freezing your eggs? And is there an age at which you're considered too old to freeze your eggs? <laughs> well, anybody who knows much about the fertility game uh, knows that with respect to the possibilities of um, time and circumstance, uh, the younger, the better. And of course, uh, probably if I had to pinpoint an age somewhere between um, the early 30s and the mid 30s would be the, the perfect age to cryopreserve or freeze eggs simply because um, there's still um, ovarian reserve or a stock of, it, of eggs remaining in, the uh, remaining in the ovaries from which to gather the eggs. And also the quality of those eggs genetically is still remains intact. So say that you've decided to freeze your eggs, walk us through the process. You know, what goes into it? What are the steps that the process actually entails? Yeah, like most fertility services or most fertility circumstances, it involves consultation with qualified physician. So that's usually a reproductive endocrinology and fertility specialist. Um, it also involves um, uh, assessment of ovarian reserve. Sometimes this is the anti-malarian hormone or the FSH or the combination. Also uh, AFC or antral follicle count could be performed using uh, sonogram or ultrasound. And then there are some uh, other things that need to be done just because of FDA regulation, such as infectious disease screening. Um, and that's it's really regardless of the patient's uh, previous or current sexual history. Um, from that point, then it becomes planning the cycle from a calendar point of view, taking medications to, to cause uh, eggs to develop. Those are typically, uh, the egg development is typically monitored using ultrasound. 
And let's say an individual would stimulate for maybe 10 days duration prior to being able to withdraw or retrieve those eggs. During that time frame, she might undergo uh, three ultrasounds in a 10-day time frame, roughly at three-day intervals, in order to see the development of the, the eggs uh, during the process. The egg retrieval process or the egg withdrawal process is an outpatient procedure performed with anesthesia. And it's done so with anesthesia because um, a needle, the same caliber that we draw blood with, is passed through the tissue of the vagina and into the ovary. Um, of course, this wouldn't feel good on any day uh, with any individual's point of view. And really from a physician and safety standpoint, we just need the patient to remain still so we can safely visualize the eggs on ultrasound and withdraw them uh, without harm um, or losing any egg along the way. Are these the same steps in the, the IVF process or are those two kinds of patients going through the same processes? Yeah, at this point, up to the point I just described, it's nearly identical. Uh, meet with a qualified physician specialist, have a discussion about the risks, benefits, indications, alternatives, likely outcomes, potential failures of, of egg uh, freezing uh, or IVF uh, in the other aspect, and go through the, the required testing, um, make a plan, get it on the calendar, start to undertake the plan and, and you know go from that point. But essentially to this point, yes, it, it, almost identical to IVF. Okay, so when all is said and done for the process of freezing your eggs, how long does that whole process take? Kind of everything you just mentioned right up until your eggs being frozen. What, how long are we looking at there? Well, the beauty of it is, is it can be um, really performed at a breakneck pace for some individuals. So say, for example, a young woman is referred to me and her diagnosis is unfortunately um, cancer such as lymphoma or some other type of cancer in which her oncologist wants to start chemotherapy uh, nearly immediately. Uh, essentially, we can start stimulation medications, um, you know, after the appropriate counseling and after the appropriate informed consent and, and all of the, the, the things that you would expect in excellent medical care are, are you know, undertaken. Um, we can perform the stimulation and egg retrieval in a matter of days. So for example, let's say that we got the formalities taken care of properly, and then um, the person started on their um, medication to make the eggs uh, develop and mature. Um, three days of medication, let's get her ultrasounded. Another three days, let's get ultrasounded. And then you know maybe another two or three days and then egg retrieval. So really, if you count those up, you're talking about probably 10, 10 11, 12, 13 days from the time we started. The medication to the time the eggs were were out of the ovaries and, and in the laboratory for freezing. So tell us a little bit more about the egg retrieval process. You know, I know that you said it's done under sedation. What else can you tell us about what that uh, procedure entails, recovery time, etc.? The egg retrieval process is done under sedation, and in fact, it's done under a full anesthesia. The difference is is that the anesthetic is such that we can use an oxygen mask to maintain the patient's airway while she's sleeping. Uh, instead of having to have uh, in a tracheal tube or an intubation. So despite the fact that, that the patient would be fully asleep under general anesthesia, there is um, sort of a less involved technique in order to maintain the airway, which is better for patient recovery in a, in a quicker fashion. Uh, from the standpoint of the retrieval process, and a transvaginal or internal ultrasound is inserted once the patient is fully asleep. 
And on the ultrasound screen, we can visualize the egg follicles, which um, almost look like a modified cluster of grapes, uh, uh, black ovals, black circles. And there is a biopsy guide on the um, ultrasound visualization aspect and the needle passes through that biopsy guide. So basically I can use my eye-hand coordination to see the egg follicles, gently go through the tissue of the upper vagina and into the ovary, into the egg follicle, and then vacuum or aspirate those eggs from the follicle into the test tube and, and hand off to the laboratory so that they can check for the presence of the egg in the Petri dish. Of note, um, in IVF, uh, this process was called test tube baby but never in this process is the baby in the test tube. It might be more like Petri dish baby, but uh, it's only the egg that's in the test tube. You know what? That's good to know. I've actually always kind of wondered about that. So it's helpful. <laughs> so let's get into the science then of how exactly the eggs are frozen after that process. There's yeah. vitrification or flash freezing, and then the traditional method of slow freezing. What do each of these methods entail? Kind of what are they and what are the pros and cons of each? Yeah, vitrification has really revolutionized our field. Um, I've been in the field for nearly 25 years, and during the, the start of my career, vitrification really was not a uh, clinical process in the, in the human medicine world. It, it was used in, in other uh, species and bovine or ovine or equine um, gamete freezing, but not, but not in humans. So when my career started, slow freezing or sequential freeze was the uh, technique in play. The problem with this technique is that ice crystals form uh, through this process and ice crystals are the enemy of cell membranes. In other words, ice crystals, if you can imagine what an ice crystal would look like under a microscope, they're almost jagged like little sharp edges. And when those ice crystals form and uh, expand, they can puncture cell membranes. And when the cell membrane of the egg is punctured, it, the egg is probably going to not make it through the freeze and thaw process simply because the egg is one single large cell, as opposed to, for example, an embryo, which is made up of a multitude of cells. Um, so vitrification is really, uh, like I say, has modernized and revolutionized uh, our field. Vitrification really involves uh, being able to pick up the embryo in a very small wire loop so the best way for someone to imagine this is think of <clears throat> the circumstance where a child has a ring and a, um, a bit of soap solution and they're going to quote unquote blow bubbles. Um, uh, so think of that ring and how you can dip that ring in the soap solution and that, that liquid will uh, create a film and it will stay present in that ring until someone uh, forces it out by, by blowing on it and, and quote unquote, making the bubble. Well, of course, in the embryology lab, we don't blow on this. We simply use the little tiny ring um, and it has fluids in the surface tension and we can put that in the Petri dish and literally pick up a single embryo and hold it in that little film. And then the, um, that little film containing the embryo can be flash frozen over liquid nitrogen vapor placed in a vial and then placed into a liquid, liquid nitrogen tank and frozen for essentially eternity without ice crystal formation. So it's crazy amazing how it's revolutionized things in our industry. That's really amazing. And I think that's a really helpful analogy mm -hmm. for uh, people who might not necessarily have a science-minded brain. Uh, when, did, when did this start to become the norm? You know, how long have we been seeing vitrification as, as the standard way of of egg freezing. Yeah. 
at least for the last 10, 12, 15 years. So it's been around for quite some time and the techniques have been perfected in nearly every laboratory in the world uh, that performs IVF uh, can do this technique uh, with uh, great fidelity. Are there other factors that can impact the success of egg vitrification aside from just the type of, of freezing that is done, lab conditions, things like that? Yeah, lab conditions certainly can play a role. I think from a consumer or patient standpoint, it would be important back during the consultative phase of this process of just getting an idea of how many egg freezes and how, and, and quite frankly, how many IVF cycles does a given clinic do? There's, a, there's an axiom in our field that basically um, clinics and IVF laboratories should stick to what they do a lot of, just because it's sort of the practice makes perfect scenario where um, if I were someone who was seeking egg freezing, I probably would um, not want to go somewhere where they say, yeah, we did a couple of those last year, as opposed to the practice across the street who, who has performed 200 in the past year. It doesn't always mean the practice with the numbers is necessarily guaranteed to be better, but you certainly want uh, a practice in an IVF laboratory where the experience is abundant and you know one less thing to, to worry about when it comes to this uh, intricate process. That makes sense. How many eggs are ideal to freeze? You know, can you try freezing your eggs more than once to increase the amount of eggs that you have in storage? A circumstance exists where um, it would be ideal to freeze as many eggs as possible. However, we're oftentimes limited by the number of eggs available uh, based on uh, ovarian reserve, patient age, and other medical circumstances. And so if you take, for example, a patient whom is, let's say 35 years old, and that patient has 10 eggs, um, at 35 years old, the average patient with 10 eggs is probably gonna have somewhere around a 70% chance for live birth from a frozen egg. If you take that same person and she's 35 years old and she ends up having 20 eggs retrieved, that increases her chance for live birth to, to probably around 90%. And of course, I don't want any of the, the, the statistics I'm using to be thought of as you know, applied to any individual patient. It's just a, trying to give a, an example of what does it mean to have a certain number of eggs? And what do I mean when I say, you know, the more the better? Um, because essentially for a lot of um, young women who are freezing their eggs, the more eggs they have, the greater likelihood that they're approaching a 100% chance for a future pregnancy. Okay, so say that you've frozen your eggs and the time has come when you want to start to try to get pregnant. What happens next? Where do you go from there? Yeah, so again, like before, we have consultation and we discuss what does all of this mean. Of course, we presume that when the individual is ready to thaw their eggs and use them, there is going to be um, a sperm source. And so many times that is that the individual is now partnered or the individual has gotten to the point in her life where she's decided to um, not achieve pregnancy partnered and uh, donor sperm would be selected and utilized. So essentially the egg has to be thawed. Uh, thaw rates for uh, vitrification are thought to be somewhere between 80 and 90%. And then the thawed egg has to be fertilized. It can be fertilized through conventional in vitro fertilization where the sperm and egg are simply placed in close proximity to one another in the Petri dish. 
and allowed so-called nature to take its course. Or there's the ICSI technique, uh, ICSI, intracytoplasmic sperm injection, where a single perfect uh, sperm swimming and perfectly shaped um, is injected into the proper location of the egg uh, to obtain fertilization. Once the sperm is in the egg, it would be the next day that fertilization would be checked. There are certain visual parameters through which the laboratory can determine that, that the egg fertilized normally. And then the fertilized eggs, uh, now embryos, are allowed to grow in the culture media in the Petri dish. The culture media is the solution that is especially made for the embryo to grow in. Um, the embryo grows in the laboratory for the next uh, five to six days. We grow them for five to six days in the laboratory in the Petri dish simply because in human reproduction, that's the ultimate stage of embryonic development. Uh, embryo development is what's called the blastocyst stage. Once the embryo reaches the blastocyst stage, it either has to be transferred into um, the individual's uterus in order to conceive, or it has to be frozen because current techniques don't allow for further development uh, in the Petri dish. Okay. And so what happens from there? It's been monitored for a little while and then what's next? Yeah. So again, depends on what our pre-planning has been with the patient. If the pre-planning has been to um, monitor her uterine lining or her endometrium so that we know that it's ready and receptive to achieve the pregnancy, we could do what's known as a fresh embryo transfer. And this simply means that the embryos that have grown out uh, to the fifth day and become blastocyst, the leading or the best one of the class can be selected for transfer. And that embryo transfer occurs, um, unlike the, the egg retrieval, the patient is not under anesthesia for this procedure. The procedure, the patient is awake. Um, a speculum is inserted vaginally, similar to a pap test or an, an annual exam technique. Uh, we visualize the cervix and using a flexible um, hollow catheter, under ultrasound guidance, we transfer the embryo into the endometrium and the uterine lining um, for um, potential pregnancy. Um, the opposite of that would be uh, a frozen thawed embryo transfer. And I know this sounds a little crazy because you think like, well, the eggs were frozen, now we thawed them, now we're um, going to fertilize them, now we're going to freeze them again. But there are certain circumstances in which that would be um, necessary. So let me give you a couple. Um, one circumstance would be if the individual wanted to perform genetic testing of the embryo. Genetic testing of the embryo involves um, a biopsy or, or taking a small, um, a few cells from the part of the embryo known as the trophectoderm. The trophectoderm is the portion of the embryo that becomes the placenta and the membranes of the pregnancy, not the portion that becomes the, the fetus or the embryo or the baby. Those cells can be analyzed um, for chromosome normalcy or ab abnormalities, but that um, currently takes approximately 10 days to two weeks to return a result. Remember in our previous part of the discussion, we know that the embryo can't sustain itself in the laboratory greater than five days. And so since there's a discrepancy between when the result would be available and when the embryo has to kind of make a decision, so to speak, we would freeze that embryo after the biopsy, awaiting the results so that we would be able to determine that this particular embryo is genetically normal. Yes, it's one we wanna transfer. And at that point in time, uh, having prepared the patient's uh, uterine lining properly for uh, 
implantation, we would thaw the embryo and, and do the, the transfer technique. One of the other reasons other than genetic testing would be some women who whom stimulate uh, vigorously with the medications for in vitro fertilization and egg maturation will actually undergo um, a mild process called ovarian hyperstimulation, OHSS. And those individuals, it, it, in those individuals, it's recommended that they don't become pregnant immediately in order that their ovaries can uh, return back to a normal size from the enlarged size that they became during the stimulation. And even if we had previously planned a fresh embryo transfer, we change that plan and freeze the embryos so that the individual can return their ovaries to normalcy and not become ill from the OHSS um, uh, circumstance. So let's set expectations a little bit. Talk to us about the likelihood for success of um, eventually achieving a pregnancy after you've frozen your eggs. Yeah, Kate, like most of the discussions in the reproductive realm, the likelihood of success hinges greatly upon the patient's age. If we compare two individuals, say one individual is 30 years of age and the other individual is 40 or 42 years of age, even if that individual, uh, even if those individuals are able to freeze the same number of eggs, the likelihood of um, successful live birth pregnancy uh, in the individuals is greater in the 30-year-old than in the 40 or 42-year-old. And it simply is the uh, plays upon the fact that certain things um, are finite, finite and known in this equation. And one of them is, is that with time, the number of eggs will decline uh, with age. But remember in my uh, example here, I said both of these individuals have the same number of eggs. The other finite fact is that the eggs and then therefore embryos uh, decline in genetic normalcy with time as well. So the 30-year-old individual has a much lower likelihood of having a genetic abnormality. Um, and the genetic abnormalities, of course, lead to lower chance for pregnancy and greater chance for miscarriage. So it's really difficult to blurt out a statistic or just say a certain number of giving someone what to expect from this. And that's why way back in the beginning, when we talked about having a consultation with a quali qualified provider, it's because we should look, there's actually sort of a nomogram, if you will, where it plots the number of eggs versus the patient age. And you can start with the age of 30 and go all the way through the age of 45. And you know, if you have 10 eggs, this is your live birth likelihood. If you have 15 eggs, this is your live birth likelihood. And it comes back to a question I think we touched on earlier. Are there circumstances where an individual would undergo more than one stimulation or more than one retrieval? And the answer is absolutely. Say we're comparing those the two individuals uh, of which we began speaking in this um, segment, the 30-year-old versus the 40 or 42-year-old, it may take the 40 or 42-year-old two retrievals or even three to obtain 10 eggs uh, compared to the 30-year-old who may get them in, in one retrieval. So um, success is defined here in, in many, many ways. I know the ultimate answer is we want a live birth. But um, I think these um, numbers in this um, question have to be individualized. Just like everything else in medicine, that is that makes a lot of sense. So how long are frozen eggs viable and what happens uh, to unused eggs? Well, frozen eggs 
and frozen embryos for that matter, are essentially viable forever. Um, they're frozen at ridiculously low temperatures, something like minus 196 Celsius. I mean, numbers that we can't even fathom in our everyday life. And so all cellular processes stop. And for this reason, um, I think, and, and maybe uh, someone out there knows uh, even different, uh, I think that there have been embryos that have been thawed and have led to live births. Uh, the embryos were 20 or 25 years old. Um, and so there's no reason to think at this point, based on what we know, uh, that eggs couldn't be um, frozen for that duration of time as well. Clearly, that's not a duration that most individuals are going to utilize. Uh, most individuals are probably going to utilize their eggs within three to five to 10 years time. And so there should be no worries whatsoever about that time frame and keeping the eggs uh, safely frozen. When it comes to what happens with unused eggs, of course, these eggs are not the property of the IVF laboratory or the institution. These eggs are the property of the individual who, from whom they were uh, retrieved. And um, it is that individual's choice as to what happens. So I've had situations where an unpartnered individual um, wants to try to get a better insurance with regard to her future fertility and she freezes eggs. And then as life would have it, she meets someone and they develop a, a relationship and they decide that um, they're going to be get together and, and have children. They achieve uh, pregnancy without using the eggs that she froze. And then here she has these that she never ends up needing to use. So some individuals might choose to discard these eggs some individuals might choose to donate them to um, an institution where um, there's an institutional review board approved uh, study performed re relating to eggs. Um, and some may choose to donate them to another individual known or anonymous so that that individual could utilize um, those eggs that, that you know, are essentially unused at this point. That's really interesting. I never thought about that part, that those sort of frozen eggs could end up being donor eggs at some point. Um, are there, you talked a little bit about ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome. Are there any other risks associated with freezing your eggs? So they really, like we talked before, the risks really fall under the same risks that we see in the IVF process. So ovarian hyperstimulation is something we look out for and we try to prevent. Also, risks of anesthesia, although thinking about anesthesia, our patients are typically young and healthy. Remember, we're talking about individuals who are between the eight, you know, between uh, teenagers to 50 years old, let's say. And so with, with most people being in their late 20s to early 40s, so healthy individuals typically do well under anesthesia. So even though theoretically anesthesia is a risk, um, those risks are very low with the type and, and type of anesthesia and the type of patients we're, we're talking about. When it comes to the actual egg retrieval, as I mentioned, we're using a needle and we're doing it under ultrasound guidance, but we are inserting that needle through the tissue of the upper vagina and into essentially the body cavity where the ovaries are. And so there is a small risk of um, puncture of an internal structure, bowel, bladder, uterus, cervix, uh, blood vessel, and uh, those risks are less than 1%, but they have been recorded in time uh, and over time to have happened you know, uh, in the world. 
And then, you know, let's talk a little bit about, I don't know if I would call it the emotional risk, but certainly there's an emotional side um, to freezing your eggs, just like there is to undergoing IVF. You know, how can this process weigh on the individuals and couples who undergo egg freezing? And, you know, how can they find support throughout the process? Yeah. All of these decisions and all of these processes weigh heavily on individuals and couples. Um, you know, I think many individuals who are unpartnered or who are pursuing professional goals or feel like there's not enough time to commit or not enough finances to commit are already feeling stresses of life, already feeling stresses of decisions, already questioning even in their own mind <clears throat> and with respect to their family and friends, am I doing the right thing? Is this what I should be doing? You know, is this what's meant for me? And on top of that, we've talked through this discussion of how many uncertainties there are, even though the techniques are good, and even though numbers can, can look good, the bottom line here is there's no guarantees. And so there's always going to be mental and psychological anguish when it comes to these decisions. Um, I think I mentioned previously in a discussion that there's an organization known as Resolve, resolve.org. It's a fertility organization that if you were to look at their website, um, and peruse their offerings, um, lots of, a lot of mental health services. But more locally, every fertility program typically has uh, licensed psychologists, sometimes psychiatrists, who are, um, let's say, on staff or very close to staff in order to support patients through their, through their journey. And so there's no question that um, family members, friends, significant others, um, those of us that we know that are acquaintances that have gone through these processes before, those are very important um, for us. But at the same time, uh, sometimes a third party individual, such as a mental health professional or um, someone you meet through a group on Resolve, um, are, are very beneficial uh, in the process of support. So really just finding support wherever you can from the people in your own life and maybe looking a little bit externally to some medical uh, assistance. Yeah, if, everybody's yeah. different. Some people yeah. some people wouldn't dream of talking to a counselor. Other people wouldn't dream of, of joining a group online. Um, but, but vice versa, some people, you know, would see it differently. And so absolutely, it's individualized. And I think the important part to know is that there's a multitude of circumstances and services available. And if people aren't having luck finding them, then just like everything else, just ask. And um, someone, um, if not me, someone uh, near me or, or works with me can point in the right direction. Sure, lots of options out there and just figuring out what's the best method of support for you. Dr. Mooney, is there anything else that we haven't discussed today that you think is important to this topic? What else might folks need to know about freezing their eggs that we haven't talked about yet? I think the most important things uh, relating to this topic are that the techniques, the scientific and medical techniques, such as stimulation of the ovaries, retrieval of the eggs, vitrification or freezing of the eggs are quite excellent. Uh, 80 and 90% uh, vitrification survival rates. Uh, once the egg that's been vitrified is thawed, maybe 70 or 75% fertilization rates in many circumstances. So these are, these are really top-notch numbers. However, I think it's also important to know and have eyes wide open going into the process 
that even these good numbers that are well above 50% don't guarantee a future pregnancy. And there are circumstances that sometimes an individual can't foresee uh, in embryo development, genetic abnormality, um, circumstances related to miscarriage that um, we didn't even know about because we'd never been pregnant before. And so I would think that while there are some practices in some entities that almost market this process as a guarantee against a future, you know, no partnership or, you know, getting your professional goals in order. I, I just don't like the idea that uh, we can think of this as a guarantee. It's, it's simply not a guarantee, albeit a good option for many people, um, albeit safe and effective for many people, unfortunately, not 100% guaranteed. Got it. Thank you so much for that important caveat. And thank you so much for being here with us today and for speaking with us on this important topic. Uh, you're welcome. It's a pleasure to speak on the various topics of reproductive endocrinology and infertility. And um, I love to be invited back. To find an OBGYN or to schedule an appointment with Cleveland Clinic Women's Health, please visit clevelandclinic.org women or to discuss fertility concerns with our fertility center specialists, please visit clevelandclinic.org fertility. You can reach both departments by calling 216-444-6601. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for listening to Health Essentials, brought to you by Cleveland Clinic and Cleveland Clinic Children's. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit clevelandclinic.org slash HEPodcast. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for the latest health tips, news, and information.